think that giving consumers choices and giving them information and letting them choose is the best way for us to sort of win over the long term. So I think we're going to continue to do everything that we can to go along that journey that I was talking about, that we have long, long ways to go to get to where we want to be. But we're going to continue to keep the consumer first and foremost and say, how do we not make it just like the vegetables that you should be eating, but make it taste really good and make you feel really good about it. Um, and, and I think for that, like we will be able to um, continue to like evolve and raise the bar and, um, and keep giving customers what they ultimately want, um, even if they didn't think about it. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet? Lex Keefaber here, and I will be your host along with the one and the only Jessica Miles. Today we have on the podcast Kristen Smith, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Furnish. Furnish is disrupting the world of furniture by creating rent, rent to own, and just buy it models with furniture that is being crafted using sustainability principles, but also really fundamentally thinking about our relationship with stuff. How do we stop thinking of things as disposable and start creating more of a circular mindset around when we use things? How else can we extract value out of them, either by returning them or repairing them or renting them so that we can create a longer life cycle for those products? Ways that we can start living better without sacrificing our lifestyle. So that's going to be our podcast today with Kristen from Furnish. Really looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. Thanks for staying on board. Welcome back to another episode of Who is Saving the Planet? Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet? Jess Miles is here in all of her glory. (laughs) I'm excited for this episode. Combat some of my Monday blues. Okay, there you go. That's what everyone likes to hear. Jess Miles on board. And we have with us the COO and uh, early investor um, of Furnish, Kristen Toth-Smith. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So glad to have you. This is going to be a lot of fun. We were talking about it before about how some of our perceptions of bad furniture companies are maybe a little bit misguided. So I'm excited to have you correct us. Um, Let's start at the top. What is Furnish? Furnish at its core is a company that is meant to help it make help make it effortless to create a home that you love. And that home is more than just a physical space and physical goods. It's actually a feeling as well. And it is informed by what you have to do to get there and what you have in that space. And so for us, what that means is we allow you to rent one to an entire home of items, furniture and decor between two and 12 months. Um, for as long as you want, uh, with a ton of flexibility and convenience built into it. So really high service in terms of putting everything together and getting it into the space that you want and taking away anything that might have wrapped it um, and often reusing all of that uh, as well. And then uh, we also just give you a lot of flexibility. So if you move or if your situation changes uh, or you fall in love with a piece, we allow you to uh, have us move your furnished items. We allow you to swap things out. You can apply all of your rental payments to buying out the the pieces that you love. So if that makes sense for you financially, Um, but we just try to give a lot of like convenience and flexibility um, to customers. And then what's really great about that is 
not only is it a, a better customer experience than I think the traditional retail of investing a ton of money up front, committing to furniture while your life may change, but it's also great to avoid having to uh, dispose of furniture that no longer works for you because we just pick it up and give it a new life. Whereas there's almost 10 million tons of furniture that goes into um, landfills every single year in the US. And we are able to avoid that by refurbishing items and getting them out to another person who loves them and it perfectly fits for them. So the core of the business model is it's like a rent to own platform for furniture so that we can, yeah, we had the opportunity to speak with one of your colleagues in this space, Jay Reno of Feather. Um, and it, it also is like, this is not a new model, right? Like we've been leasing cars for decades. I'm Tex Turner and I guarantee you this ain't no bull because leasing is the modern alternative to buying. Why do you think that this timing, that now we're seeing this model for furniture really sort of take hold? And, you know, Rent-A-Center has been around for a long time too, right? So this idea is there, but it hasn't it hasn't broken through yet. So what's different about this, this iteration of, of yeah. this new business model. Yes, we've been leasing things and renting things for a long period of time, but I think it's generally come with this idea of it's not a good business decision or not a good financial decision as a consumer because there have been um, lots of interest or other fees that have been sort of wrapped up in that. And I think um, what has happened is that over time, um, that caused the sort of smart personal finance decision to be to buy things. Um, what, again, as like we go from like my parents through my generation to sort of your generation, because I'm probably a little bit older than you are. Um, I know that like it's it's now becoming more um, more what people are seeking out is to sort of access things versus own them like that sort of cachet of like owning something doesn't carry the weight or prestige or anything like that. Um, and you were seeing that with cars when, um, you know, Uber and Lyft and the sort of ride sharing um, apps came online and it was like, all right, well, I don't have to have a car for those few times that I need to use it. Um, same thing with like your closet with Rent the Runway. I could go and invest in a bunch of clothes that I probably am not going to wear that many times. And so I think that there's just been a sort of mind shift uh, away from like ownership as the smart thing to do to this access economy. And I think that we as, uh, you know, really consumer oriented companies have said, let's not make this something that doesn't make financial sense for customers. Let's make this actually bring a lot of value to the table as well. Um, and so, you know, we, we've really built the, the company from the customer backwards to make it sort of a no brainer to, um, to rent furniture until you've decided that you really love it. And then you can make that commitment if you get to that point. And if you don't, great. Um, you're not investing money for the time that you don't need it or you don't want it. Um, so why, why is it happening now? I think, um, I think that there's just been a mindset sh shift and, and we're renting media and cars and uh, our closets. And, and I think that there's just much more acceptance of this as a model. Um, and I think that the difference between us and some of the legacy players, Rent-A-Center being one that I think was really um, a, a sort of rent to own um, mindset. And there were a lot of fees and interest in, in 
those payments. And so it wasn't a good financial decision. There are others like court furniture um, that have been around for decades as well, but they aren't really oriented around the customer. They don't have furniture that today's customer really wants. They don't have the service that uh, today's customer really demands. Um, and so, you know, I think what we've really done and in, in the sort of new crop of, of furniture rental companies have done is really try to say, how do we super serve the customer first and foremost and, and uh, build a company around that? I'm glad that um, you brought that up because as someone who has lived in rental buildings um, and student housing mainly, um, you obviously have to like take care and take inventory of the furniture that you have. And like, if you damage things, then it um, is part of a fee that you pay. So like, number one, if someone rents something for, I don't know, five months, um, it, do you make it easy to like come and like take it out of their place um, so that they don't have to do anything? Or is it like, I have to lug this couch to a distribution center somewhere? Um, we definitely do not make you do that. Uh, <laughs> which, well, that's good. <laughs> um, I can't say what I just said and then say, oh, no, but then you have to figure out how to get a couch on, you know, on your bicycle to get back to the warehouse. No, we we do think about things in a full circular um, manner. And so that's everything from if something doesn't really work for you and you t- let us know within three days, we'll do a free swap for you. Um, we'll pick it up. If there's something else that you want to try out, we'll bring that to you. Um, at the end of your rental term, we can come pick things up. You can tell us that you want to extend your rental. You can tell us that you want to use all of your rental uh, payments and and buy the item. You can have us move things. Um, but we do come in and get the things that you no longer need whenever that is. So, yes. When you're talking about the actual the furniture itself, um, Jess touched on this one before, but I'd be curious to know what decisions you guys made in terms of how you were going to make this furniture, who you were going to source the materials from and how you were going to pursue that in the most sustainable way possible. Seeing as it's definitely core to like the way that you present yourself to the world. So walk us through that most sexy of places, which is the supply chain. Well, I mean, I love it. So I'm glad to talk about it. Um, it's really a journey. And we're still, I would say, early on in our journey. When we started, um, you know, we went and we talked to a lot of uh, suppliers and we really relied on the suppliers to tell us what we needed. And I think what we learned in the first couple of years is what works and what didn't. And so that allowed us to really get smart about how we source the products that we work with. So today we're a mix of sourcing from vendors who are, you know, designing and manufacturing the product and doing that ourselves. Um, But we got there over time learning about what durability standards we needed to have about the materials. First and foremost, we want these things to be able to last. That means that it really matters what the durability uh, is in the materials that are being used. Um, it also matters from a refurbishability and modularity perspective. We're, we're really picky about what items are on our site because they not only have to meet our style bar, but they have to be durable, they have to be refurbishable, and they have to be modular so that we can really utilize them for a really long period of time and not have to go through a liquidation method, which gets it just one step closer to the landfill. 
Um, as we start to build more and more of our own furniture, that gives us more opportunity to know exactly what the supply chain is for all of the materials. And we're in a, a process right now where we're working both with our vendors that are making the materials for us and up our supply chain to really understand the full supply chain impact and to uh, find and build a longer term roadmap for increasing the sustainability of the materials and the transportation and uh, the manufacturing processes. And I'm super excited about, you know, where that's going to go, um, even though we're kind of early on in that journey still. So the um, one of the biggest companies in the world of furniture, IKEA, they just announced a buyback program. So they just said, we'll, we'll buy your old Ikea stuff and give you a voucher for it. How are the companies like yours that are new entrants to the space going to challenge the typical way of doing business vis-a-vis -vis buying furniture to you know, just go out and buy it, what have you, or these legacy companies adopting similar practices? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, Ikea, it's great to see Ikea doing that, first of all. I mean, they're a huge furniture company, and I know that they've been experimenting with circular economy concepts for a while, um, buyback just being the one that they've really implemented here in the U.S., but, you know, we were part of a business incubator um, program with them, um, and they are very passionate about the circularity and the full life cycle and impact of, of furniture. Um, so I no, think it's nice to hear that. Like, it's so <laughs> we spend so much time, like, just with the crap that big companies say about how they're trying to do better for the environment, lots of which is is insulting in terms of how wrong it is it's nice to hear someone say like no no, no ikea is actually doing it well and i'm like so unsurprised that the swedish the nordic company who like owns their own forest and probably are just like super nerdy when it comes to these things are also more or less genuine in their posturing so i think so i mean it's it's always a balancing act and and nobody is perfect but i i think that they they really do care. And like you said, they're very vertically integrated. They've got their own forests. They have an opportunity to make a massive impact. And I think that they do. And I think that some of it is, you know, in Sweden, they don't they don't think of Ikea as disposable furniture. I think that's an American mindset. Um, that, and that, that American mindset is what we're going to next, which is like, how do you, what's the real problem here? Is the yeah. problem with the furniture or is the problem with our people conception around consuming things. Yeah. Well, we can get to that now, but I think the answer is both. Um, and I, you know, but like to answer your, your first question before I forget it, the, how are we going to challenge? I think that giving consumers choices and giving them information and letting them choose is the best way for us to sort of win over the long term. So I think we're going to continue to do everything that we can to go along that journey that I was talking about, that we have long, long ways to go to get to where we want to be, but we're going to continue to keep the consumer first and foremost and say, how do we not make it just like the vegetables that you should be eating, but make it taste really good and make you feel really good about it. Um, 
and and I think for that, like we will be able to um, continue to like evolve and raise the bar and um, and keep giving customers what they ultimately want, um, even if they didn't think about it. So I think that's how we we challenge the bigger co- the bigger companies. But furniture is a super fragmented market. Um, even IKEA, that's the biggest in the world, they only have you know a small ish market share. So you'd be surprised um, how many different furniture companies are out there. And we just want to continue to add our brand of option and hopefully continue to grow awareness of the the benefits of, you know, rental uh, and the circular economy that the model that we provide. So that's also a really interesting point that that it actually is genuinely fractured. Like you hear about you know, you're going to go into a sunglass hut and it's like 95% of those glasses are made by Luxottica, like the same company. It's just in different brands or what have you. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about fashion and something like 80 to 85% of all the clothes are sold by this like top 15 companies. And then there's like a really long tail of everything else, but there's definitely a lot of consolidation around the top. So for furniture, maybe that's it has more of that like crafts person lineage. And so it it is more sort of smaller and local ish. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've got Ikea, you've got Ashley Furniture that has their own outlets, but they also wholesale to a lot of other furniture retailers. Um, And then you have the sort of like Williams-Sonoma lines, the West Elms, Pottery Barn, Williams-Sonoma, you have the Crate and Barrel line, CB2, Crate and Barrel. Um, those are sort of the ones that are really well known, but there is so much furniture that is built by um, manufacturers that you wouldn't even know the the brand names of. And, and that's again, just scratching the surface. And there's a lot of direct to consumer furniture that comes out uh, all the time with outer inside weather, Joybird, you just kind of burrow, you see all these direct to consumer um, plays that come out and, and it's because people want choice and they want uniqueness in their, um, in their homes uh, and they're looking for the thing that most suits them. And so I think that, you know, people want choice, but it is a fragmented market. I think there's a lot of room for different models and different products. And again, I think it's, it's some of it is just awareness of, of the different things that you can do to, to furnish your home. I think it's interesting that you brought that up because I know that obviously choice is good, but I, I think with such a fragmented market and just in general, a lot of times as a consumer myself, I, I sort of don't know where to go and I get um, paralysis by choice and I'm not sure how to determine like, I know we were talking about your marketing efforts a little bit before we started recording. Um, so yeah, I don't know how, how you necessarily go about like thinking about customer uh opinion and yeah yeah i mean i think we lead with service right and that customer experience first and foremost and we just continue to raise the bar for ourselves because at the end of the day especially in the u.s market everybody's busy they have other things to do besides spend a ton of time trying to decide what they want and then getting it delivered or picking it up and doing the all of the the things that you do after you get the boxes home which is you know the largely involves Ellen wrenches and um, fighting with the people that are around you. <laughs> you know, I actually love putting together furniture. Get like out of that. here, Lex. Love it. 
I absolutely. Well, you know, if you it. ever need a side hustle, we're always looking for people. <laughs> First of all, I don't believe you. Second of all, even if you that's true, that? you're like 1% over everything 1%. That you know about me. I have like three Rubik's cubes in this room. I just like things to get like fit together in a particular way. And when you're building a piece of furniture, you know what the outcome it's like Legos. It's just a giant Lego. That's not true at all. Have you seen an Ikea? It's different pieces sheet? that snap together. What's different about it? It's just, a, it's a thing. I know okay. there's definitely people out there that like look at a giant Ikea manual and they're like, this is great. Sign me up. I would love to like a, a, a nice, a, a good Malbec from Cahor and like an itch can sky and like bookshelf or whatever it is. I'm in. <laughs> But to put that a question that's a really good one though, right? Like how how important is sustainability in terms of consumer behavior, in terms yeah. of people saying buy my stuff because yeah. it's the best I mean, for the planet? People are intrigued by our sustainability circularity message for sure. But when you look at what really causes people to click through to our site or to actually convert on our site. That's the sort of like cherry on top, but it is not the first or second thing that people think about. The first thing they think about is, do I like this furniture that's in this photo that is uh, in the ad? And that's the sort of first thing. And I think the second thing is we can appeal to people by the service message of, you know, all the things that we do for you and you don't have to commit to the furniture up front. So you know, you can have the, the furniture, the home that you love for as long as you want it. Um, and we will evolve with your life. And I think that's something that everybody has definitely really internalized over the last year. But I think it's really the the third message, the tertiary kind of reason is like, oh, and I can feel good about this because there is a sustainability um, aspect to it as well. It doesn't drive most people. And of course, that we just were talking about it. There are some people that really are looking to, you know, put their dollars where the sustainability um, and impact can be. Um, we just haven't seen the vast majority of people really clinging to that message first. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's not part of what we're doing and that we won't be there for, you know, the mind shift change that I'm sure will happen over time. Well, consumer opinion is consumers are changing. Consumers are changing very quickly and what they care about is also changing. Our sister company, United by Zero, is all focused on providing an easy way for consumers to understand things about what they are buying. So we definitely believe that perhaps some of the reason why people aren't doing that is because sustainability is super complicated. It's hard to know what actually is or isn't sustainable. The brands are using very uh very similar language so that your customer you're like i don't know who's telling the truth i don't know how sustainable this is they all sort of put a tree on a on a website and make me try to feel good <laughs> about it but like what does that mean uh there's one other thing i want to touch on before we let you go um i'm going to call this the the dick cheney strategy of hr um Old move I know I, I don't like to associate with it, but this HR move was brilliant. So when uh, George Bush was looking for a vice president, he put Dick Cheney in charge of finding him a vice president. And Dick Cheney said, listen, I've looked at all the options and it turns out I'm the best one. And so you were an early investor in this company. And at the point they were probably like, we need a COO. Were you like, guys, I got this. 
And then you're like, I looked at all of the options. It's me. <laughs> oh, I think I probably tried to talk them out of wanting to hire me. <laughs> um, Michael likes to tell the story in front of me. So I'll quote him a little bit. But he said uh, that taking my investment was the beginning of one of the longest recruiting cycles he's ever been a part of. Of course, I was unwitting in all of this. Um, but, it, you know, what happened is, first of all, I, I love what the company is doing, first and foremost. But as I got to meet more and more of the people that were coming on to the team, I mean, legit, everybody says they love who they work with. But I've been around and I'm here to tell you this is by far the best team I have ever been able to you know spend any time with and I just absolutely adore each and every one and the way that we come together as a team and so it was hard to say no but I'm pretty sure that I tried to talk Michael and Lucas out of hiring me because of many, many reasons. Um, it's like the first negotiation as the COO you lost because then you got hired. That might not be great at negotiating. That's like a, an amazing paradox. Like in order to get this job, you need to convince me not to hire you. Yeah, that's some intense reverse psychology. You need to not convince me not to hire you. Right, there's a lot yeah, of moving crazy. pieces in that one. Yeah, no, it's, uh, but no, I mean, it was sort of, I'm one of the people that just sort of wants to help, um, but I wanted to be sure that they really wanted to hire me and hire me at the time. And I live in Seattle and they're in LA. And so I was like, is this smart? Is this overhead that the company wants to take on? And, you know, we, we had a lot of discussion about it. So, um, yeah, it was it was careful, but Michael will tell you that he was recruiting me from day one. So, well, how's how's the company going now? What where are you guys in your flight path towards dominant market share for all things furniture? <laughs> well, we're still really really early in that um, quest, but I think we've really been um, focused on building something that's really scalable and that meets customers' expectations. And, you know, we're really just laser focused on the net promoter score and all of the customer feedback that we get to say, what can we do better? Um, you know, we've, we've been able to improve our net promoter score over the period of time that I've been here. It was in the sort of like mid to high 80s. And now we're sort of around 91, 92, which is just kind of world-class, but, you know, we don't take it for granted. We've got to work for it every day. So for those of you playing at home, if you ever get uh, an email from a brand that says, hey, how much would you, how much, what's the likelihood of you recommending this brand to one of your friends? And you look at that and you're like, nah, I don't know, what have you. Here's a trick. Nine and 10, that means that yes, you will recommend that brand to someone else and then you get a plus one score and your net promoted score. Six, seven, and eight, no, five, six, seven, and eight are all in the middle. Or no, six, seven, and eight. Seven and eight are neutral, and six and below are detractors. It's six and below. Oh, it's even yeah. all right. So seven and eight means you count for nothing. You're zero, and six and below is our detractors. And the net promoter score was invented by some consultants, of course. I believe it was BCG that they put this together, and it's like now the gold standards for how brands think about. Do you, what do customers think about us? And so getting yours up, it may not feel like a lot from 80 to 90, but that last little bit can really make the difference with people actually going out in the world and then recommending your brand to people, which cuts down on your acquisition costs, which is how you can create a virtual cycle. Level up. Yes, so absolutely. 
I need you to explain that to a lot of people every day. I should, I will take the recording of this and use it. <laughs> In a previous life, I had the mandate of raising the net promoter score for the company that I was working with. And so like, I still have fever dreams in the middle of the night, just being like, BCG, I hate you. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But still, but that's great. Congratulations. That is, that's a big that's, deal, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So that's, I mean, I think we've really been focused on that. We uh, did some expansion recently. So we were just in LA and Seattle areas. And then we did um, some expansion of our Southern California area. So we kind of go all the way Ventura down to the border. Uh, so we have a much bigger we print down there that we can service. And then we are in Dallas and Fort Worth, Dallas, mm. Dallas, Fort Worth. There we go. And, and Austin as well. Um, and, you know, we, now we're at a point where we're like, all right, we, we think we have a playbook for what we need to do. We're going to continue to look at how we improve in our supply chain, in our operations, in our service, because there's always room for that, but we're, we're feeling good about the expansion and, and, that'll be what we're focused on here going forward. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciated uh, your time and the uh, the fact that you guys are trying to help people make better choices about the stuff that they consume. We can fully get behind that. Amazing. Well, thanks for having me. It's great meeting you both and I'm excited to, to keep working on our mission. Well, and anytime you have any updates or news, you let us know. We'd be happy to tell people about it. We love hearing from our, our alumni now. Almost 100 episodes in. Amazing. Congratulations. Well, it's just a lot of time for Jess and I to stare at each other <laughs> adoringly on my side. Staring what deep a- into each other's souls. Mm-hmm.